0: So let's have a word of prayer as we get going. Lord God, we pause just a moment in the midst of a a season that has us uh, eager and anticipating and busy and worried and looking forward to a great celebration and looking forward to finishing a great celebration. All of those things are in our hearts and in our minds But we know that you have gathered us together right now in this place and this time. So help us to focus. Help us to remember that you're with us. Help us to know that we can learn your truth in our world and in our lives as we uh, open your scripture. Be with us for the sake of your son and the living word that is here in the power of your spirit as we open Genesis today. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay. Um, We are well, well, well into the story of Genesis itself and we've gotten past the the creation stories and all the early problems of humanity. We're well into the story of God's particular plan and particular activity with Abraham and Abraham's family. Uh, God's plan to reveal himself and to bring the world back to him through the mission and ministry of that particular family of people. That's one way of looking at the story of all of Scripture, actually. And that's one way of looking uh, at, at, at who Jesus is and what Jesus was about, the continuation of that story. So today we have um, three stories. There's quite a lot of text, and I'm going to read quickly uh, through some of it and a little more slowly through other parts of it um, because there are some very, very important uh, affirmations proclamations of who God is and who we are and what our relationship with God is all about. And we learn about all of that through the relationship with God that Abraham and Sarah have and and many other folks. Okay. So let's dive in. Uh, We're in Genesis chapter 16, and we'll be working our way through chapter 18, uh, verse 15. Verse. We'll do chapter 16 first. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. Okay, right now we know that that's a problem because God has said to Abraham, you're going to have a bunch of children. <laughs> but Sarai has had no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, you see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael. For the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roy. For she said, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore, the well was called Bir Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Okay, this is one of the, one of the more famous stories, really, of, uh, of the Old Testament. And as we look at this story, one of the first things we need to remember is is that anytime we are studying scripture, and frankly, it's a good principle to follow, anytime you are studying any piece of literature that is speaking to you from outside of your own context, outside of your own culture, your own period in history, you need to go back into that culture, into that context, into that period of history, and try to understand what was going on then so that you can interpret what is being said from that perspective. Does that make sense to you? And so we immediately as 21st century Westernized Christians, we look at this story and one of the first responses a lot of people have is, well, how terrible a thing this is, right? Number one, Sarai, Abram's wife, has a slave. Okay. We've talked a lot about slavery here. And we understand that for a long period of history, even in the history of God's people, there were slaves being kept. It was a different forms of slavery than the kind of slavery we had in this country. We won't say any more about that. But not only did did Sarah, in a sense, the mother of of the people of God, uh, have a slave, uh, when she couldn't have a kid, she said, well, I'm gonna have a child by you. So I'm gonna give you my slave to be my husband's wife so that they can have a baby. And then that will be our baby. Now, we would not think of doing such a thing problem. Number one, we wouldn't think of having slaves. Number two, we wouldn't think of of allowing for, in a sense, an extra marriage to go on so that someone could have a baby. Now, in today's world, it gets a little more complicated because 40 years ago, we could say that this was a strange and foreign story, but now with with surrogate motherhood and all kinds of things, you have all kinds of issues going on here. And so we need to understand that what Abraham and Sarah were doing in their life was the normal accepted thing of the time. We can argue whether it was right or wrong or whether it's what God wanted or not, but the simple fact is this was the way things were done. And it was not at all strange that Abraham and Sarah had slaves. It was not at all strange that Sarah would say, well, I can't have a kid, but we need to have a kid. And so we're going to have a kid. And the kid really, the implication is Hagar's going to have a son, but that son's going to be my son. That son's going to be, you know, she's sort of taking the baby away from Hagar in a sense that would have been done. That was a normal accepted thing. So we need, to, we need to not focus on that aspect of the story so much because that was not what was at issue. That was not the issue for the story. Does that make sense to you? Really important as we're looking at, at, um, at biblical perspectives and biblical understanding. So I do find it interesting. It's very interesting, though, because there's so much humanity that comes out of these stories, uh, when you look at them and, and when you read the backstories. And actually, a lot of the English translations uh, I don't know if that's the case here a lot of English translations kind of sanitize some of the language. <laughs> but, but do you notice, Hagar gets pregnant?" And so she goes into Sarah and says, nah, na na, nah, nah. I got pregnant. You didn't." <laughs> that's what's being said here. There's a very human reaction in all of this that's understandable. And so Sarah gets upset. This is actually part of the story. Then Sarah gets upset and says, wait, the implication is you're the slave girl, right? You belong to me and whatever happens in your life, whatever even happens with your body actually belongs to me. And and so Hagar, in a sense, steps out of line a little bit there. And because of that then this plan is devised uh, for Hagar and and ultimately Ishmael, the son who was born, uh, to be sent away from the family. Now, there are two huge implications there. One of the huge implications is, is that if Hagar and Ishmael are sent away from the family, then Ishmael cannot be the heir to Abraham, right? And also, if they're sent away from the family, then here we have Abraham's son, right, who is now removed from Abraham's care and from from Abraham's family. And so there are all kinds of things going on. This is a wonderful soap opera, actually, if you wanted to to make it into that, right? So we, we need to note, though, the biggest issue, the biggest issue in this story is that going back to the beginning, God has said to Abram, and by implication, Sarai, I'm going to give you a child. There was no plan for a surrogate mother here, right? I'm going to give you a child. And Sarah comes up with a plan for Abraham to have a child that is not God's plan. And they execute that plan. They carry it out, but God will have none of it. Everybody seems fairly okay with it, except for God, right? Except for God. And so the question is, as the question always is, are Abraham and Sarah acting faithfully and reacting faithfully in their relationship with God? Are they doing what God has said needs to happen? Are they trusting God's promise? We've already seen several instances how Abraham and Sarah have struggled with trusting God's promise. Uh, the first story they heard about that, you know, they have to go into Egypt because there's a famine, and Abraham is worried that the Pharaoh's going to take Sarah uh, if he understands uh, that, that uh, Sarah is, is his wife, and, and so he, you know, pretends that she's, his sis, that she's his sister, all of that. We went through that story. Here again is yet another story of the problem that Abraham and Sarah had with trusting God's promise and simply sticking with the plan. And of course, there's a great deal of, of humanity involved in that situation, isn't there, right? How many of you have ever discerned what you thought was God's plan and then started going that direction and then then it, it wasn't working so well or it wasn't happening yet and, and, and you gave up on it or you changed, the, 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 changed the, the arrangement or whatever? That's the issue. Is God to be trusted? And can God do what God says he's going to do, right? Abraham and Sarah are now getting old. Abraham was 86 years old, okay? That's getting to be a little bit long in the tooth for having a kid. Sarah wasn't much younger. And, and so they're beginning to say, well, this is not the normal way of things. This can't happen. Well, I, one of the issues is you should never say to God, you can't do that. <laughs> right? You can't do that. <laughs> That's one of our issues, one of our problems. So, Hagar goes away because the situation is tense. It's just not a very easy relationship situation. And what happens? What happens? Notice in verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her. Okay? God will not let Hagar go. God still is looking after Hagar. And then later we'll learn that God still is going to look after Ishmael, right? It's not that God doesn't love Hagar or that God doesn't love Ishmael. God loves all of his children. But God has a plan for everyone. (laughs) And, And God's plan is what God is interested in in making come to pass, and he's interested in our sticking with whatever that plan is. So God is still taking care of Hagar and Ishmael, right? So Hagar, interestingly, Hagar um, pays attention to the angel. Lots of times Hagar and Ishmael are kind of, when, when you speak of them in Christian circles, people sort of say, oh, Hagar and Ishmael, right? They were not part of God's plan, as if they were bad people. Okay, well, here, here we have uh, evidence. This is not about there being good people or bad people. Uh, it's about, it's actually really about Abraham and Sarah uh, not fulfilling God's plan. Um, Hagar pays attention to God and she gives God a name. It's an interesting name, uh, El Roy, El Roy. Uh, the, the deep meaning behind that name, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Here's here's evidence that that Hagar actually knows something about God, the one true God, that that God is magnificent, sovereign, powerful, great, and and we can't even withstand being in, in his presence. That's an article of faith throughout the Old Testament and going into the New Testament. That's part of what makes the incarnation of Jesus so special, is that people have never seen God. If we were to fully see God, if we were completely to be in God's presence, we, we couldn't withstand the experience. That's how the people of the Old Testament understood God. And so when we all of a sudden proclaim that, that God has now become like one of us, that's a radical thought. That's a radical idea. Here you have that idea expressed, um, which is not about it's not that that's theologically wrong or anything. It is, it is a, a, it's a way of understanding and stating who God actually is, the magnificence and sovereign power of the Almighty God who made everything, everything that is. I mean, we can't get our minds wrapped around that. And Hagar Hagar understands that. Okay? So um, Hagar eventually has a, a son, Ishmael. Now the story, the story continues. Let's go on into chapter seven. Well, before I go there, before I go there, is there anything out of this little piece of the story? that is just bubbling in you, that's, uh, that's uh, forming a question or an insight. Yeah, let's get, the, let's get the microphones going. And we have a hand up over here.
1: Why does Ishmael kind of um, have to pay a price for this whole thing?
0: Okay, good question. Why does Ishmael have to pay a price for this whole thing, right? Notice, I, I didn't make a big deal out of that statement. Ishmael is a wild ass of a man, right? So, you know, any, anybody that says the Bible is boring just doesn't understand the Bible. Um, you could say that Ishmael's experience growing up made him kind of a rough and tough kind of guy because he didn't have it so easy growing up. Uh, here I think of, of Johnny Cash's theology of a boy named Sue. You know that you, you know that song there, okay? Um, but Ishmael didn't have it easy, right? Ishmael did not have it easy. Here is here is the Bible's frank uh, admission and acknowledgement of the fact that we are all born into something that is bigger than us, that precedes us, and that will will continue on after us, that we simply have to deal with. Uh, You you know, Ishmael could say, life isn't fair, right? I I was born as the in a sense, it wouldn't quite be the same way, but in a sense, I was born as the bastard son of this famous big guy, right? Uh, but I didn't get to stay home with him. I had to go off with, with my mother. Uh, all of that stuff is there. By, by tradition and history, Ishmael did go off into a different uh, part of the Middle East territory and became uh, his his progeny, his offspring. Uh, uh, there are several Arab uh, Tribes that t- trace their history to Ishmael, and and ultimately, uh, one of the tribes from which uh, Muhammad later was born, the father of Islam, traced their lineage back to Ishmael, and and people actually, some people make of that, uh, they they create that into a conflict between Islam and Christianity. Um, Depending on your perspective. I I know Muslims who say that's not a conflict. We actually have a common Forefather of the faith in Abraham and that's something that joins us together not not separates us apart, but yes Ishmael Got the got the short end of the stick in that way Uh, The Bible doesn't excuse it the Bible doesn't explain it Uh, the Bible simply acknowledges that and That's true of life. Isn't it right? How many of you would have written a better backstory to your life than the one that you got? I bet all of us could have, right? I would have been born, you know, into a a filthy, rich, incredibly powerful, royal family from somewhere, right? I was born with amazing, good looks and personality. all sorts. I was given great gifts and talents, but there were some things I did not get. And so I'd like to add those things into my story. You would like to add some things into your story. We're all born with a story that is both a great blessing and a story that presents its own challenges. That's that's just true of Ishmael. Yeah. What else do you see? Yep, yep, here we go. Um,
1: At the end of, uh, what is it, verse 14 the well, the name of that well must, and I'm really not going to try to pronounce it. It's incredibly difficult. Yep. Yep. Um, But she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, thou art a God of seeing, for she said, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? That's her statement. And therefore Mm -hmm. the well was called this impossible name. Now. Do you have a clue as to what that name of the well actually represents?
0: I don't, but someone does, I'm sure. I did not research that. Notice, though, she names God El Roy. The the word El, E-L, okay, Mm -hmm. is one of the names for God, El. Mm -hmm. Uh, El Shaddai, God Almighty. El Roy, God, who is mysterious and wise, the the well is called Beer Lahai Roy. So you have that Roy involved there. The name that she gives to God is the name that is attached and added into that name of the well. Ah, so could
1: the first part of it could just be some geographical location or something? Yeah, yeah. That's a.
0: If you'll remind me, I'll look that up for us. That's a very interesting question. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And
1: okay. In my Bible, um, it says, "The well of the living one who sees me."
0: Ah, the well that's, of the living one who sees me. Okay, that's the
2: notation for it.
0: Okay, there we go. So there, there, there's there's a translation of the name of the well itself. All right, good, good. Lots of lots of uh, of ancient cities and ancient locations had religious background to them, where something happened. Right. Uh, and, and, and so the name is attached to that. Cool. Cool. Yes.
2: Hey, um, when Mary got pregnant of Jesus, mm-hmm. it was an archangel who came and visited her and talked to her mm-hmm. and explained to her the plan. And in this case, Agar, a um, slave, is is the angel of the Lord coming and talking to her. Mm-hmm. and. Face to face, she even thought she was going to die. Mm-hmm. And he's not; Ishmael wasn't our savior. So why would God talk face to face with Hagar, mm-hmm. and why wouldn't He talk face to face to Mary?
0: Yeah, yeah, good, good question. Uh, the the angel speaks to Mary and says, "You're going to have Jesus, the savior." Right. The angel speaks to Hagar and says, "You're going to have Ishmael," which is not part of God's plan. Part of what's going on here, I think, is that the Bible understands is that, that God is working everywhere all the time with everyone, and God gets to decide who he wants to talk to and what he wants to say to them. We don't get to decide that. And the people that we would think God should talk to, God doesn't talk to. <laughs> and the people that we don't want God to talk to, God does talk to, right? God appearing to Mary, was really quite a surprise and quite a shock because Mary was just sort of nobody from out of nowhere. Frankly, Abraham was nobody from out of nowhere. Hagar is nobody from out of nowhere. They're not part of a royal family, part of any special lineage, but that's part of the Bible's One of the Bibles, I I know I'm always saying this is one of the big themes of the Bible. There are 800 million big themes of the Bible. That's why we study it all of our lives, right? One of the big themes of Scripture is that God doesn't care about what we think is important or special or deserving particular praise and attention. God cares about what God wants to do in the world with everyone. And so God blesses Hagar. With his, with revealing himself to her, God blesses Ishmael, even though they are not part of this plan for Israel itself. Now, that's a very important thing to remember, as the history of Israel plays itself out, because some people in the history of Israel begin to think began to think that they were the most special. They were the most important. We're the chosen people, right? And 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 therefore God loves us more. Therefore we have a special place in the world, and 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 that's not the way God operated. God was continuing to appear among and to work with other peoples, right? Uh, Jesus. When we I, I try to look at every theological question from the perspective of what Jesus had to say about things, and Jesus was always highlighting how God was at work in the lives of people who were not part of the chosen people, the few special ones, right? A Roman centurion, a Samaritan woman, right? A tax collector, a traitor against the country, right? God is working everywhere with everyone all the time to the extent that God wants to do that. And we don't get to set the boundaries on that. And God doesn't set any boundaries on that. So God pops up in the most unexpected, to us, unexpected places. We think that God should appear to well-educated Presbyterian pastors. That's who God should talk to, really. If anybody, that's who God should talk to. But, but most of my experience is God doesn't talk to us. God talks to other people, right? Does that make sense to you? That, 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 that levels the playing field among all people. All people, all people. And God even talks to people who are not part of the family, so to speak, right? This is sometimes hard for Christians to swallow, because for some Christians anyway. Some Christians think that God only reveals himself to Christians. Well, all throughout the Bible, God does not only reveal himself to the Jews or only to people that the faithful, righteous people like the Pharisees said God should reveal himself to. God pops up, God gets to do whatever God wants to do. And so we should be looking for where God is appearing whenever and however God is appearing. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, thank you for that question. That got me started on a lot of things. Yeah, good. Okay, here we go. Stephanie. In
3: verse two, when Sarah goes to Abram and asks to him to um, have a child with Hagar, and then later when that kind of blows up and she goes back to Abram and says, this isn't working, and he he uh, uh, agrees with her and lets her do what she wants to do. What Sarah wants.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Was this guilt over what he did to her in Egypt?
0: There's, you know, I mean, yeah. that's just
3: kind of what it's like. Okay, I really, I really messed up there. And so, if this is what you want, I'm going to. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to let, agree with you.
0: <laughs> I don't see anything in the text that would that would allow us to come to that conclusion. But it is a very logical question, right? Why did Abraham go along with Sarah's plan? Now, I think it's helpful to think of all the reasons for that. You know, Why did Adam go along with Eve's plan? There's, there's overtones of that. Clearly, Abraham does, right? And so Abraham is responsible. Share, Abraham shares responsibility for that plan. And on the positive side of it, you, you could you would simply say, Abraham would say, well, God has promised this. Now, I've told my whole family, right? Hi, family. You don't go, we're going we're gonna to pack up the truck and we're going to move to Beverly Hills. You know, we're going we're gonna to move the whole family to a whole new place because God has promised that, that we're going to have a big family, but then it's not happening, right? And so this is, if I were Abraham, I'd say, wow, what a great idea. Uh, this is a way for Abraham to save face. And to say, okay, well, this is how we're going to have a family. But again, it, it's, it's Abraham and Sarah's jiggering with the process, jiggering with the plan, right? God's plan, God said, Abraham and Sarah, you will have a child. And it's not happening quickly enough for them. There's issues of patience that go on here, too. Right, There's issues of patience. That's a good question to ask. It's important to tease all these things apart. It's important not to read too much into things that are there, into the words that are there. But it's important to try to understand what that backstory is. Good question. Okay, shall we go on? Do we, got, do we have more? Okay, let's go on into uh, chapter 17 then. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Okay, now Abram is 99. Some some years have passed, okay? And God again comes to Abram and says, I'm your God. I'm Almighty God, walk before me. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous, okay? Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, "'As for me, this is my covenant with you. "'You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. "'No longer shall your name be Abram, "'but your name shall be Abraham, "'for I have made you the ancestor "'of a multitude of nations.'" I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you shall be circumcised when he is eight days old, including the slave born in your house and the one bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both the slave born in your house and the one bought with your money must be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Can Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight. God said, No, but your wife Sarah shall bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will bless him and make him fruitful and exceedingly numerous. He shall be the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this season next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham then Abraham took his son Ishmael, and all the slaves born in his house were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and his son Ishmael was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised and all the men of his house, slaves born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Okay, there's a lot going on here. Abram's 99, still waiting. And still periodically, God appears and reconfirms the promise. I'm still God Almighty. You are still the chosen one. This is still the plan. I am making my covenant with you. This is not a covenant that Abraham asked for. This is not a covenant that that God says, Abraham, if you will do X and Y and Z, I'll take care of everything. It's just God's plan. This is the way it's going to happen. It's an unconditional promise from God to Abraham, right? And as a sign of that, as a further confirmation in a sense, God says, Abram, We're not going to call you Abram anymore. We're going to change your name. There's a change in the relationship in a sense. The relationship deepens. You're going to get a new name, Abraham. The same thing with Sarai. You're going to get a new name, Sarah, right? We do that sometimes in, in society, in families, in our lives. When something big happens, we change our name, right? How many of you have had your name changed at least once? Okay? I don't know what I'm going to do when I'm talking to the men's Bible study tomorrow. We'll have to come up with some other example. (laughs) Right? Your name is changed. God changes the name. God changes the name. This happens in, in the New Testament, right? Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul. Names get changed, right? So the name change is another way of establishing the unique relationship that Abraham and Sarah have with God. It is that Abraham accepts that and says, okay, now I am this person. We change people's names when something significant happens, usually something that is a new relationship, right? Jack, we're no longer going to call you Jack. We're no longer going to call you who you are, we're going to call you the Reverend Jack now. And then Reverend Baca, we're no longer going to call you Reverend. We're going to call you Reverend Doctor, right? When things change, that happens all throughout society. That's part of what's what's going on here, okay? I am establishing this covenant. You're going to keep my covenant. As for you, you will keep my covenant. Abraham almost doesn't have a choice in this, There's an aspect of that when it comes to our relationship with God. When you study the history of people who have been very open about their relationships with God, people often have the experience that God comes to them and says, this is going to happen, and they feel compelled. Generally, happily so at the beginning, but not always. They feel compelled. If God tells you to do something, if you really believe it is God, Almighty, (laughs) If God says to do it, you're going to do it whether you want to do it or not. I, mean, I have plenty of stories in the, in the scripture of people saying, no, God, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. Jonah's my favorite example of that, right? But eventually, if God says you are going to do something, then you are going to do that. That's, that's part, of the, part of the nature of, of human life, that there's something bigger going on in our lives than we control, isn't there? How many of you have experienced something in life that was beyond your control? Okay. How many times today already? <laughs> okay. So in a sense, this is something bigger than, than, than Abraham can control. Right. And then God establishes the, uh, the practice of circumcision. Um, now, a couple things I want to say about circumcision. Notice. Notice that it's not just Abraham's biological family that is going to be circumcised, right? It is also the slaves born in his house and the ones bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, okay? Sometimes people make a big deal out of biological lineage among the Jewish people, right? But there are many instances in the Old Testament where biological lineage does not determine the relationship that people have with God. It is God who determines the relationship that people have with him. And biology is not the most important thing, apparently. There are a lot of, we would say, non-Abraham family people here who are included now in the family. That becomes a very important conversation in the church in the first few years after Jesus was gone, when Paul said to the Jews who were Christians living in Jerusalem, you know, I think the Jewish Messiah is also the Messiah for everybody else. And the Jews back in Jerusalem, led by Peter, said no. And then Paul said, wait a minute, look at all those places in the Old Testament where God brings in people who are not part of the Jews into the family of, of, of God's family. It's a bigger thing going on there. So that's an important thing to note uh, in this whole business of circumcision. Now, what I want to discuss for a moment and ask your thoughts and ideas on is what is the value, what is the value of a physical. Sign a physical symbol uh, that denotes a relationship someone has with God. What's the What's the upside of that? What's the good thing about that, or things? And then what are the What's the downside of that? What are the things that don't work in that? Okay, so let's get that. Where are my microphone people, mic, mic people? Let's go, 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 go! Come on, run, run, fast! We're running out of time. <laughs> Did I have? A, well, I've got a hand over here. <laughs> I, I was thinking of
2: that. Um, as you were reading the story and remembering my father who fought in Germany in World War II mm-hmm. um, and on their dog tags they would have a P for Protestant and an H for Hebrew or a C for Catholic and a lot of the Jewish men would have theirs left blank because mm-hmm. they did not want to be captured by sure. the Nazis. sure and then um my father said came the um dilemma that a lot of the christian men because they were americans and circumcision was not was becoming more popular was not limited to just being jews
1: mm-hmm.
2: were concerned because that was one of the ways that the nazis tested you know your religion. And it took, and I'm not sure it ever worked, but probably a lot of Christian men were put in the category of the horrible fate of the Jewish men
0: Mm -hmm. because of that. Mm -hmm.
2: So I was thinking about the marking of the body. And then I had a friend who was an Orthodox Jewish woman who said that if you are tattooed, you may not be buried as an Orthodox Jew because mm-hmm. it's defacing of the body, but an exception is made for people who had the numbers on their arms mm. because it was not something that they did. So the, the whole question of a physical marking is somehow problematic to me.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, that's very, yeah. You, you've indicated both the upside and the downside, right? The physical marking is is an identifying symbol that is not changeable, right? It's not changeable, so you're marked. Period. Uh, but that can either that can either serve you well or, or serve you ill, right? Uh, you know, you would want to hide your identity at some point in time. That's a that's a very good point. That's a very good point. God establishes that practice. Now, later on, Christians. Uh, this was an argumentative point for Christians as well. Uh, the The Jewish Christians, the first Jewish Christians, uh, and, and I, I have—I mean, these are people, people like Peter. You know, some of the first disciples said, "Well, in order for a person to become Christian, they must first become Jewish, and they must first be circumcised, right?" As a, as part of the whole business of becoming Jewish. And Paul said, "No, no, 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 no. That doesn't count anymore." And so Christians moved away from in any physical alteration of the body as a sign, primarily because Christians were more interested in what lots of folks in the Old Testament were interested in, and what some of the prophets would later talk about, and what the prophets would talk about is being circumcised in your heart, right? And this, this brings up one of the downsides of, of a, an outward sign of your religion, right? Uh, anybody can be circumcised. Anybody can wear a cross and, and identify themselves as a Christian, right? But I've seen lots of people wearing crosses that uh, uh, at least outwardly, I don't wanna judge, only God will judge them, but at least outwardly, they show no sign whatsoever of having any interest in Jesus Christ, they're wearing a piece of jewelry. Okay. And so the Old Testament prophets wanted to talk about circumcision of the heart. What is your relationship with God in your heart that is not dependent on an outward sign? Now that's an issue for people of faith, including Christians to the modern day, right? Uh, all of us have grown up in a context where, where uh, we have known Christians. Maybe we've come from, from this. Maybe we, there's still something of that in us. And there very likely is. It says, you know, a, a, a real Christian wouldn't, woman wouldn't wear an outfit like that. Or a real Christian man uh, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't say those kinds of words or whatever. There's all sorts of ways that we judge a person from outward appearances that have nothing to do with the, the inward person of the heart. Um, and, and so circumcision itself as an outward sign was obviously important to God, but but it wasn't it, it was it was simply a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. And if the spiritual reality isn't there, then it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Thanks for bringing that. Up. I, I had never th- I'd never I don't think I've ever encountered that World War II dilemma that was there, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay, here we go, another question.
3: I, I find it interesting from a medical standpoint too, because mm-hmm. so many of God's rules had medical benefit or health benefits, mm-hmm. waiting until the eighth day when a newborn is born, they're deficient in vitamin K, mm-hmm. and it takes them about eight days to produce, get enough from their mother, mm-hmm. so that they don't hemorrhage during mm-hmm. the circumcision. In in, um, in places where you have a lot of fine sandy soil being circumcised is a benefit because if sand gets under the foreskin of an uncircumcised man it is very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in, in uh, places where men can bathe daily they don't circumcision isn't of such a benefit mm-hmm. and interestingly about World War II my father uh, was born in 1920, joined the Marines when he was 18. He was uncircumcised. So he joined in uh, 1940 or 1938. And the Marine Corps circumcised him, mm. as they did all men, because if you were fighting in the jungle, you obviously were not bathing very often.
0: Mm. And mm. from a
3: health standpoint, they were less likely to get an infection under the foreskin. Yeah,
0: interesting. So how
3: many guys that went to Europe got circumcised before. They went not from any kind of uh, Jewish religion, yeah, just yeah. from the, yeah. But
0: then that causes a problem. <laughs> yeah, interesting, yeah. interesting. The issue, the issue here, uh, there are lots of people that point to circumcision as having its origin in a simple uh, medical practice, if you will, a, a hygienic practice, okay, that then took on religious significance. Um, and you have to entertain that idea. Um, here, the issue is the, the, the question of a person's relationship with God that God establishes and says, you belong to me. This is the sign that you belong to me. Uh, and that sign is available to anyone whom God calls to belong to him. Now, obviously, it's just the male. So there's that whole male-female thing going on that, oh, look, we've run out of time. We don't have time to solve that problem today. <laughs> there's that going on. Notice, notice, though, notice, though, that God is, is blessing Abraham and his household and his offspring, including Ishmael, right, in all of this. And God is making his plan uh, come to pass. He is their God. Uh, In a sense, they, they don't get a choice about that. I'm your God. This is what's going to happen. Even when they try to move away from God or do things in their own way, eventually they come back to God. That's an interesting question to talk about in our relationship with God. When we try to leave God, does God let us leave him? Sometimes God reaches us out and reaches out and calls us back to him and brings us back to him. There are all these overtones going up. We don't have time to get into chapter 18, although very quickly let me summarize that. Chapter 18 is about these three men who appear in uh, in the camp, in in the the household where Abraham is, uh, and and he takes care of them. He looks after them and says, hey, you're about ready to have a baby. Um, And Abraham and Sarah still don't think that they're going to have a baby. But it's interesting that God sends these messengers to say, this is about to happen. They still don't believe it, but this is about to happen, right? Some people will see um, um, a a prefiguring of the the wise men from the East coming in this, who knows. Um, In a sense, it's kind of a a one-off story. The most important part of the story is that Abraham and Sarah still don't think that it can happen. And frankly, if you were Abraham and Sarah, would you think that it was going to happen? Right? I mean, how many of you are planning to have babies here? This was a really great question at Lacoste Glen, Glenn, by the way. I say, yeah, you know, if you read this story, you should be terrified because you just don't know what might happen, right? God has his plan. All right, we need to stop. Let's pray. God, thanks for being with us today. Help us to continue to look for you and to pay attention to you when you show up and help us to be faithful to you because we know that you are faithful to us. We pray that in Jesus. Amen. God bless you all.